You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This week, within hours of a ruling from the Supreme Court, the National Archives began turning over hundreds of pages of former President Donald Trump's White House papers to the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. By a vote of 8 to 1, the justices rejected Trump's attempt to block the release of his records on the grounds of executive privilege. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, it was a one-paragraph order. Only Justice Clarence Thomas dissented. Did the justices reject Trump's claim of executive privilege? Not exactly. What they said was that the argument he was making namely that a federal appeals court was too dismissive of his status as former president. The Supreme Court basically said, you know, that wouldn't matter anyway, because the appeals court also decided that even if he was the incumbent president, his claims of executive privilege were so weak they needed to yield to the needs of this congressional committee looking into the attacks. So the majority acknowledged that there were questions that are unprecedented and raised serious and substantial concerns. Yet they decided those issues didn't need to be addressed. Right. They said that essentially their dicta, the notion that the appeals court said some things about those issues, about the ability of a former president to invoke executive privilege, but that wasn't central to the holding. And that's why the Supreme Court was never going to take up Trump's appeal, and that's why they said we're not going to block the turnover of the papers. So as of now, the decision of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, with a panel composed of three judges, two appointed by President Barack Obama and one appointed by President Joe Biden, that stands. 
It does, although it's an interesting question what precedential value it has. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a separate opinion in which he tried to make the case that this notion that former presidents can't override a current president's views on executive privilege, Justice Kavanaugh was making the point that because that was dicta, because it wasn't essential to the holding, it's not binding precedent. And so we may have to look to a future case to decide exactly where that balance lies between the former president and a current president. So how much of a victory is this for the House committee? It's a pretty significant victory, both in terms of the practical aspects, getting these documents that they want, the political aspects of it, the notion that the Supreme Court is not going to stand in the way of the committee's work, at least at this point. And from a legal standpoint, even though there are some questions about the precedential value of the lower court opinion, uh, we do have an opinion that says that a former president can't stand in the way of this sort of inquiry. Is this being seen as a rebuke of former President Trump by the court that includes three of the justices he appointed and which has turned aside his requests before? You could look at it that way. The court has, at least in the context of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election result, really not given him a whole lot. You know, hasn't taken up any of the appeals that tried to challenge the election results. And now with this case involving the January 6th attack is, at least at this point, not showing any willingness to jump in on his side and try to block the congressional inquiry. Greg, does the decision by the D.C. Circuit have any precedential authority or effect in any way? Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows challenging subpoenas from the January 6th committee on the basis of Trump's executive privilege? It does have some precedential value in that the D.C. Circuit looked at these claims of executive privilege and said, even if Donald Trump were still the president, these claims would not survive. Mark Meadows was urging the Supreme Court to take up this case and bolster the notion of executive privilege. It appears the court is not going to do that. So, yes, this this D.C. Circuit opinion could well have some value when it comes to dealing with the claims of Trump's aides that they can't testify because of executive privilege. So now let's turn to a little court intrigue. Since the court came back this month, Justice Neil Gorsuch is the only justice not wearing a mask on the bench, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who has type 1 diabetes, is participating in the oral arguments remotely. So tell us about the kerfuffle that started with a news story on Tuesday. Well, it started with an NPR story by Nina Totenberg in which she said that the reason Justice Sotomayor wasn't wearing a mask was because she was concerned about her unmasked colleagues, including Justice Gorsuch, who sits next to her on the bench. The story also said that Chief Justice Roberts, in some form, had asked his colleagues to start wearing masks. And then when the court heard arguments, right after the first argument, the court put out a statement, a joint statement, highly unusual, from Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor, in which they said that Justice Sotomayor did not ask Justice Gorsuch to wear a mask. And they said that media reports were false, even though the NPR report hadn't explicitly said that Justice Sotomayor asked Justice Gorsuch to wear a mask. And then, a couple hours later, Chief Justice Roberts put out his own statement, just one sentence that said, I didn't ask Justice Gorsuch or any other justice to wear a mask. And so that's where things stand. The court uh, is a highly unusual statement, uh, rebutting uh, media reports, and it leaves open the, the, the question of 
Why was Justice Gorsuch the only justice who didn't wear a mask? Why exactly did Justice Sotomayor decide she wanted to participate remotely? Was it because of Justice Gorsuch? Was it for some other reason? And uh, that appears to be all the court's going to say about the matter. So in the statement, the justices said, while we may sometimes disagree about the law, we are warm colleagues and friends. And that's been said before of Justices Sotomayor and Gorsuch, that they get along well. Yes, and you can often see that while they're on the bench. As I mentioned, they sit next to each other. They often seem to be getting along very well and chatting amongst themselves. They've done some events publicly. The other day, during arguments, Justice Sotomayor was referring to Justice Gorsuch and inadvertently just referred to him as Neil. So there are the signs that even if their friendship doesn't go back as far as the friendship between Justices Ginsburg and Scalia, for example, that there are certainly some signs that they are kind of unlikely friends who do disagree vehemently on the law but remain personally fond of each other. But no opera included here. Uh, no opera, and I'm, I'm not aware that either of them is anywhere close to the kind of opera fan that the, the former justices were. There was even an opera composed about their friendship. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Supreme Court seems ready to add to a line of decisions striking down campaign finance restrictions that began in 2010 with the Citizens United case. 
Republican Senator Ted Cruz is challenging the $250,000 cap on the amount of personal loans a candidate can be repaid with money raised after an election. At oral arguments, the court's conservative justices suggested they saw the provision as violating the free speech rights of candidates without any evidence of actual corruption. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The marginal uh, burden on the exercise of First Amendment rights against the marginal uh, assistance in preventing corruption. Um, uh, I mean, it's, there, there isn't a sufficient corruption, anti-corruption interest, sort of up to 250000 but all, then all of a sudden uh, there is. Is the, Cruz says that this doesn't enrich him personally because he's no better off than he was before. It's paying a loan, not lining his pockets. But the liberal justices saw the provision as a way to combat the corrupting influence of contributions made after a candidate has won. Here are justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. But you just said the magic words, to make a contribution to the winner. Not to a campaign and for its debts, but for the pockets of the winner. That's a very different corrupting influence. If a third party says, you're doing such a good job, I want to repay your loan for you. I mean, one day I had a $10,000 loan. The next day I don't. I'm $10,000 richer. Somebody just made me a $10,000 gift. Joining me is Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, these campaign finance provisions are a little technical. Tell us about the provision at issue here. So Senator Cruz is challenging a fairly minor provision of the federal election law which deals with candidates who lend their own campaigns money and then want to get that loan paid back by the campaign after the election is over. So Senator Cruz lent his campaign $260,000. Under the law, he can be paid back in full any money the campaign receives before Election Day and also any money up to $250,000 that the campaign receives after Election Day. The law says that you can't be paid back beyond the $250,000 with any money that comes in after Election Day. So again, he lent his campaign money. The law says that that's a loan. And candidates will do this typically early in the campaign before they've actually raised a lot of money. It's a kind of seed money. So candidates can make a loan to their campaign, particularly seed money. And then later, as the campaign has gotten contributions, they can pay the candidate back. That's all with pre-election day money. For post-election day money, they can still pay the candidate back, but only with up to $250,000 of post-election day contributions. After that, they can still pay him back if they have any money in their account, but they cannot accept and use any more post-election day contributions, any more than $250,000, to repay their debt to their own candidate. And what's the reason behind regulating the repayment of candidate loans in this way? Well, the reason behind it is once it's after the election, of course, your guy has won. Technically, the issue also applies to candidates who've lost. But the problem comes up, A, you know the candidate has won. And this could become a way of currying favor with the winner. Moreover, the money is not going to go to pay for any electioneering. I mean, the reason campaign contributions are treated as protected campaign contributions and not gifts, which could be prohibited by ethics laws or could be treated as bribes, is because they're used to pay for election activities. Well, at this point, the election is over. So a contribution to the candidate's campaign to be used to pay back the candidate 
looks a lot like a direct payment to the candidate. In these oral arguments, unlike the two others we discussed today, it seemed like there was a divide between the liberal and conservative justices. What were the conservative justices concerned about? Well, the conservative justices still see this as an indirect but real limit on the ability of a candidate to campaign, that candidates will be reluctant to advance money to their campaigns if they can't get fully reimbursed. So one point they make is that this operates as an indirect kind of limit on the ability of candidates to raise and spend money. A second point that's raised by some of them, I think Justice Kavanaugh in particular, was, you know, the law still caps the amount of donations that a donor could give to the campaign to pay back the candidate. That cap is the $2,900 cap. That would apply. And in fact, part of the oral argument was 86 people could give that permissible $2,900. That's how you get to $250,000. If 86 people could give the $2,900 to pay back the $250,000 loan, why not 87? Why not the next person? And that's the issue. You know, why not the next person? As long as there's a cap on the size of the donation to the campaign committee, they don't see a corruption issue. So Justice Amy Coney Barrett wondered how repayment of the loans could be seen as giving a gift to the winner. Quote, Senator Cruz says that this doesn't enrich him personally because he's no better off than he was before. It's paying a loan, not lining his pockets. Do you agree with that? I mean, the point is, it is actually putting the money back in his pocket because this was money that he was willing to give up to his campaign. It's as if I borrow money from you, you can't pay me back, but your friend can pay me back, and he does or she does. I'm going to be pretty grateful to your friend because otherwise this was, in effect, a bad debt. And having somebody cover a bad debt is like giving somebody a gift. Let's talk about the liberals and what their position seemed to be. Well, I think Justices Sotomayor and Kagan were clearest on this, which is they see it as a gift. They see it exactly the way in which the Federal Elections Commission and the law sees it, that at this point, it's post-election. It's not being used to pay for any campaign activity. It's basically, in effect, covering a debt that the campaign itself wasn't able to cover. And so it looks a lot like a gift. And as they said, Congress sort of set a balance. Congress did permit some post-election reimbursements up to $250,000, and that Congress sort of struck a balance between allowing candidates to advance their money to their campaigns as a way of helping challengers and a way of helping getting campaigns started with seed money, but then being concerned that no limits on post-election donations could become a way of kind of uh, indirectly but clearly channeling private gifts to candidates. So they saw, in effect, Congress should get some space here for kind of setting a balance between allowing some post-election reimbursement but putting a cap on it. So there was also a standing argument. Tell us about what that argument was. Uh, The government's argument was that really that this was all just a fake case and that Senator Cruz purposely lent his campaign $260,000. Senator Cruz, I think, has admitted If he'd only lent $250,000, it could have been fully repaid by post-election contributions. But that he purposely did $260,000 in order to create the $10,000 problem. But the essential argument was that the only reason that this problem has arisen is because Senator Cruz wanted to create a test case in order to knock out this law. That seems to be the case here. His attorney compared him to civil rights activists. 
Yes, he compared him actually to Homer Plessy and Plessy versus Ferguson, saying that Homer Plessy was creating a case by wanting to sit in an integrated car rather than in the blacks-only car. And the response to that was there's no basis for the racial discrimination that was in that rule. Plus, he was clearly challenging an unconstitutional law based on racial discrimination. Whereas in this case, the Congress clearly had a good justification of trying to put in these caps. And it's something that Cruz could have dealt with in another way, and that therefore he didn't really need to have this law challenged. You can never tell for sure, but what are your thoughts on the likely outcome here? Well, it's interesting. There was an interesting technical wrinkle in the case, which is um, the um, plaintiffs were challenging both a regulation and the statute. And there's some argument that the regulation, the statute says you can't pay off the candidate with post-election contributions. The regulation goes further and says if you don't make, if you're, if you don't pay them off with pre-election contributions within 20 days after the election, it becomes, uh, he doesn't get paid at all. Uh, it becomes, it gets treated as a gift to the campaign. Uh, under the statute, it's possible that the committee could scrounge up some pre-election camp contributions and pay off the candidates. So in some ways, the regulation has more bite. Uh, the regulation actually converted this, this uh, unpaid debt into a gift to the campaign. And so there was an argument that this case should have been resolved as a challenge to the regulation, which is what in the end prohibited uh, Cruz from being repaid. It's the regulation that prohibited him from being repaid, not the statute, which only prohibited the use of uh, pre-election contributions. Now, there's a very complicated procedural point. The reason that the plaintiffs focused on the, con- the statute and not the regulation, is that part of federal election law authorizes the creation of a three-judge court to any challenge to the constitutionality of a federal campaign finance provision. And then the three-judge court decision goes straight to the Supreme Court rather than through the courts of appeals. The three-judge court that heard this said, well, it's unconstitutional, so we're not going to get to the, to, the, to the regulatory issue, to the regulation. That is arguably backwards. If the regulation was improperly adopted, if regulation went beyond the statute, they ought to have struck the regulation down first. So there, Chief Justice Roberts seemed somewhat interested in this. Having said all that, I think it's likely they're going to strike this statute down. There simply seems to be five, if not six votes for treating it as burden on the candidate's, potential burden on the candidate's speech that's not justified by the anti-corruption issue. Um, I should also say that some people saw the reason that Cruz was bringing this, and you heard a statement by Senator McConnell right before the oral argument, that this could become a basis for a wider decision. This particular restriction was adopted as part of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform law of 2002. And you heard Senator McConnell expressing the hope that this could be the basis of striking down more of that statute, maybe all of it. There was no discussion of that at all in the court. So I think if they do strike it down, it'll be just the part that they argued the restriction on the use of post-election donations to repay a candidate's loan to his own campaign rather than anything broader. Would you agree that in the past decade, the court has been cutting back campaign finance restrictions with the centerpiece sort of being the Citizens United case? Yes, I think it's fair to say since the Roberts court came into existence, with Roberts coming on the court and Justice Alito replacing Justice O'Connor, who supported campaign finance restrictions. The court has basically granted every campaign finance challenge to turn, 
and struck down every law that was challenged. At the federal level, there's the famous Citizens United case in which the Supreme Court struck down the limits on corporate campaign expenditures. More recently, there was a case called McCutcheon in which the Supreme Court struck down what's called the aggregate contribution limits. The law previously had said that not only is an individual limited as to the size of the contribution he or she can make to an individual campaign, but there's an overall aggregate limit as to how much money anybody can give in campaign contributions in an election to all the candidates together. And I think when that case was decided, the limit was something like $120,000. Court struck that down in dealing with a challenge to uh, Arizona's public funding law the court struck down the provision of that law that said that publicly funded candidates who are faced with a, a high-spending, privately funded challenger are entitled to get more state public funds. The court struck that down. So I may be missing some, but I think every single campaign finance case they've heard in the last roughly 15 years, they have struck down the campaign finance law and sustained the argument against it. So they're not a court that's particularly friendly to campaign finance law. Thanks, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.